I'm Richard Sherman, and you're listening to my Audible original, The League. Equal parts history, social commentary, and entertainment. We'll focus on some of football's most unlikely, inspiring, and unbelievable stories. Be sure to check out this title and other great storytelling at audible.com. For the greater part of the 20th century, women covering sports had been nearly non-existent. But things would begin to change in the 1970s. But it wasn't because of the groundbreaking legislation of Title IX, nor the powerful marches on Washington. Instead, it came as the result of a small group of young women with dreams from all over the country who had the love of sports, the talent to write, and the ambition to pave a trail that would change the relationship between sports journalism, gender, and football. This is The League. Audible Originals presents a Joy Road Entertainment production. I'm your host, Taylor Rooks. the NFL takes hard work, grit, determination, and sacrifice. And the same can be said about the women who would first cover it. Only the field they would do battle on wasn't just 120 yards by 53. I had always been a serious sportscaster. And I remember when they said, oh no, but we don't want you to use the play-by-play. Just make up something cute and feminine. And it's like, I had no idea what that was. I just did my job. The NFL was the first major sport to use a female broadcaster. When in the fall of 1974, CBS decided to make the bold move to hire Jane Chastain for their NFL coverage. It was a decision made by CBS's chief, Bob Wessler. As recalled by Rich Podolsky, an award-winning reporter and author of the book, You Are Looking Live. Bob Wessler had run the Chicago station and wanted to do a lot of things. He had the gall to hire a woman. He hired the first African-American to be on a live sports show, Irv Cross. And the first woman Bob Wessler hired was Jane Chastain. And she was a damn good sports reporter. Jane Chastain had been a damn good reporter for nearly a decade before CBS would call. But her road to covering the NFL was as steep as the mountains outside Knoxville, Tennessee, where she was born. I was trying to break into television and I heard about an audition and I had no idea what it was and I hadn't been invited. So I just called the TV station and said, I'd like to come and audition. When I got there, I found out it was, it was sports. I mean, I grew up watching football and baseball with my dad. And so they were looking for a girl next door type. And I think I was exactly what they envisioned. Chastain's first job in sports was making picks for the NFL slate of Sunday games. I was only supposed to be on for 13 weeks and I was kind of an overnight success. It was a totally gimmicky thing, but I just kept trying to figure out a way to stay. In one week at a time for over five years, Jane Chastain would develop into a regional force in sports reporting in Atlanta and a syndicated show on radio. Chastain's big break would come a year later when she relocated to Miami, Florida. In the magic city, she would be hired by Miami television powerhouse, WTVJ, 
which was run by veteran sports director Bernie Rosen. It was a CBS affiliate, and at that time, it was the number one station in town. Bernie had seen me in Atlanta, and when he found out I was available, he immediately wanted to hire me. They wanted to introduce me gradually. In the beginning, I was allowed to just do sports features, no hard sports, no live shows. And when it came to covering the Miami Dolphins, no interview with their head coach, George Wilson. I learned kind of through the grapevine that Wilson had said that I would never interview him. And it became very awkward not to be able to interview the coach. Wilson would spend most of the season dodging Jane Chastain. He never interfered with me talking to the players, getting all my stories, but it was kind of like I didn't exist in his mind. He didn't see me. He would look right through me or right past me. But Chastain wouldn't quit persisting, and ultimately, Wilson would cave. Just before the end of the season, Wilson came up to me, and he says, Jane, you're going to be here tomorrow. I'll give you that interview. And it was interesting because I had no idea that the players were even paying attention. But after I did that interview, the players rushed over. And bear in mind, I was Miss Straight Lace because I was a woman in a man's world. And they grabbed me, they picked me up, they carried me across the field and threw me into the Dempsey dumpster. And it was one of the happiest moments of my life because at that point, I knew that I was one of them. While Jane Chastain's success in Miami would have her thrown into a dumpster, her ascension to covering the NFL for CBS would have her thrown into a cauldron, when in the fall of 1974, she became the first female NFL announcer on television. The first football game, they tell me they're throwing me in the broadcast booth they sent me to this woman who was supposed to critique all of our appearance. I mean, everybody went to her, Summerall Musburger. And she said, well, you don't look like a sportscaster. She had me taking off my makeup and pulling my hair back in a bun. And it wasn't me. But they put me between Brent Musburger and Pat Summerall. Recalls legendary CBS broadcaster Brent Musburger. I have very fond memories of Jane Chastain. She was ahead of her time. She was extremely knowledgeable about the games, and she did more homework than either of us, and she probably knew more about the players on the two teams than either of us did, to tell you the truth. Chastain's hiring had already ignited a firestorm of controversy, but not only would CBS and its affiliates receive complaints from their male sports fans, women were demonstrable in their fury picketing at events where Chastain covered and even burning her likeness in effigy. I was hated by the women on both sides. You would think I would have been their hero, but a lot of the ultra-conservative women would think, oh, well, she shouldn't be out there doing that. And she's probably flirting with the guys, you know, which I did not do. But the feminists didn't like me either because I didn't march to their drum. I just believed in working hard and eventually it would pay off. But it would all come to a screeching halt when in week five of the NFL season, Chastain was sent to Denver for a game between the Broncos and New Orleans Saints. I remember very, very well. That was Don Crickey and Irv Cross, wonderful guys, both of them. And I just decided I'm going for it. I'm just gonna do what I do. And they were both very supportive. 
And so I had a lot of comments during the game, and I did. I used everything I had in my playbook. But everything in Jane Chastain's playbook wouldn't be good enough to please the television audience. Fans flooded the network with calls. We broke the all-time existing record for negative phone calls at the switchboard in New York City. The problem, though, was that it was a female voice. And at the time, it had not been accepted. The following week, TV Guide would run with the disaster narrative in a feature article titled, Get That Broad Out of the Booth. Bob Westler really put her in an awkward position. And Westler said his mistake was that she was the first and he should have introduced her to the national public earlier and let them get to know her before he threw her on a game. To his credit, Westler would continue putting Chastain on games and assignments, but her role was never clearly defined. He didn't make it clear to the producers what I was to let me be me. They would send me to a game and say, oh, you can't use the play-by-play. Just make up something funny or cute or feminine. These were like impossible situations. Despite the difficulties, Chastain would continue to produce excellent work. So excellent, in fact, that Wessler and CBS had not only planned to renew Chastain's contract, but to expand her role at the network. But when Chastain and Wessler next met, she had news for him. I told him I was pregnant. They kept me on until I had the baby. And after my son was born, they didn't renew my contract. As with all things Jane Chastain would face in life, she would do so with grace. I came to the realization that sports had been my God. And I had a long talk with my creator about it. And I asked God if it wasn't his desire for me to remain in sports to please take away my desire to do that. And I wish I had known you could do that earlier in life with some of the other things I struggled with because instantly it was gone. But as Jane Chastain's life and interests moved away from sports reporting and toward motherhood, she could take pride in being not just the first woman to have carried the baton around a track that all women would have to run, but also on one that she had built. As 1975 approached, Bob Wessler had been searching for Jane Chastain's replacement. Unfortunately, it wasn't as if the pool of female sports reporters was shallow. It was that there was no pool at all. Wessler then widened his search to other female personalities in television. But he wasn't looking for just a pretty face. He was looking for a lightning bolt, a game changer. And it so happened that just three years earlier, one had already been crowned. Literally. Phyllis Ann George was born and raised in Denton, Texas. Though the family was of modest means, young Phyllis was trained in classical piano, says George's son, technology entrepreneur Lincoln Brown. She loved playing the piano all the time. That was her thing, especially around the holidays. She would play, but it was such a big part of her being who she was. Although George possessed a myriad of interests and abilities, interest in her seemed to be relegated to the one gift she never had to work for at all. Phyllis George was a stunner. 
And in 1969, those looks would take George all the way to the Miss Texas pageant, where the beauty from Denton wowed in her evening gown and showed off her classical piano playing. Only to lose to a drummer from Longview, Texas, named Dana Dowell. The loss would trigger another character trait of George's that isn't widely known, as remembered by her daughter, Pamela Brown, weekend anchor and senior Washington correspondent for CNN. One of the qualities I admired so much about her was just how tenacious she was. She was a winner, you know, she liked to win and she was competitive. She had sort of a quiet determination about her. Phyllis George would return the next year and changing her piano selection from classical to show tunes, this time would win, making her eligible for the Miss America pageant. And by the time she smiled, played the piano, and joked about her dog Panda, America had fallen in love. For her, it was an opportunity out of a small town and it opened doors for her and she was advocating for women. And she went on to show women that, look, you can be even more than just, you know, than a Miss America, than a beauty pageant winner. You can go on and have a career outside of that. And network television would follow. She was doing commercials, and then she got on a show called Candid Camera with Alan Funt. Working next to Alan Funt was like working next to Attila the Hunt, but she made the most of it. And she met a couple of young producers at CBS Bob Stenner and Tommy O'Neill, these were guys who were very hip and hung out with all the top sports people in uh, the city of New York. And they took Phyllis under their wing. And so Phyllis got to know a lot of people in broadcasting. Towards the end of 1974, O'Neill and Stenner would introduce Phyllis George to CBS chief Bob Wessler. Wessler invited her to lunch. They were getting along famously when he popped the all-important question, what do you know about sports? Well, she was honest with him, and she flashed that big, great smile of her and those dimples, and she said, well, I love my Dallas Cowboys, but the closest I've ever come to sports is dating an athlete. And he laughed and laughed and laughed and thought that her spontaneity would come through the TV set, and he hired her. Phyllis George would be hired on trial basis with a 13-week contract, and the network would put her to the test pretty soon. They immediately sent her out to do interviews, and her first interview was Dave Cowens of the Boston Celtics. And Dave Cowens was maybe one of the five best players in the NBA in those days. Cowens was more than a challenge. In fact, the Boston Celtics center was one of the most eccentric players in professional sports at the time. And he did not like to do interviews. She showed up at practice, and in her first chance, she said, hi, Dave, and he ignored her. And when practice was over, and he started walking towards his Jeep to drive back to his place, and she hopped in the Jeep with him and said, you know who I am, you know why I'm here, and let's talk about this. What seems out about mom is I think she loved to interview everybody. I remember we'd sit in the airports between flights. She just loved watching people and trying to understand people. And whoever she's sitting next to on the plane was likely to get an interview. Once they started rolling the cameras, it was a Dave Cowens nobody had seen before. And when the piece came out on national television, it got rave reviews. 
The Celtic star's frosty personality would then melt in front of Phyllis George. Like she really was a people person. That's where she got her energy. She really genuinely wanted to understand a person and, and hear about their story. And I just think that authenticity for people who would normally not open up be more vulnerable, like you saw with Roger Staubach. In an interview with the Dallas Cowboys' Roger Staubach, so comfortable was the straight-laced quarterback, George even managed to get him to talk about sex. Roger, you have an all-American image. You're kind of a straight guy. Do you enjoy it, or is it a burden? You interviewed Joe Namath. Everyone in the world compares me to Joe Namath, you know, as far as, you know, the idea of off the field. He's single, bachelor swing, and I'm married and family, and, you know, he's having all the fun. And, you know, I enjoy sex as much as Joe Namath. <laughs> Well, that was amazing stuff for 1975. And Phyllis George just loved it, and they all had a good laugh. Phyllis deserves a lot of credit that she hasn't received because Phyllis came in a different role, which was a hostess role, and someone that people were comfortable with. And she had that, that great smile, and, and she would go out and interview the athletes, but she never pretended to be any kind of an expert. And she actually opened up the door. She swung the door open. She was the first female sportscaster who was accepted by everybody. While the evolution of female sports reporters may have moved at a glacial pace, for some women, both historically and culturally, it didn't move at all. Until 1978, when Phyllis George made the surprise announcement that she was leaving the NFL today for a sabbatical. In just three years at the network, George had become legendary. The pioneering broadcaster was beloved by a nationwide audience and had opened the door for a generation of women in sports reporting. But she would leave CBS with the nearly impossible task of replacing her. And what followed, said Carol Cook, who was the sports publicist for the network, was the greatest talent hunt since Scarlett O'Hara, recalls Rich Podolsky. They wanted to get a replacement that would fill Phyllis's shoes. And they had a talent search. Uh, they alerted all the top agencies in the country to send in uh, the resumes of their best models and TV people. But even after CBS would sift through thousands of actresses and television personalities from New York to Hollywood, who would flood the network with their resumes, headshots, and reels, they still couldn't find who they were looking for. But at that time, there was a young actress in Los Angeles who was represented at the powerhouse agency ICM, who was curious as to why her name was not being submitted. Like Phyllis George, she too had been a beauty queen in her youth, winning the Miss Ohio pageant in 1970. And like Phyllis George, she too had modeled. And like Phyllis George, she too had appeared on a number of television programs, including Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, Starsky and Hutch, and The Six Million Dollar Man. But there was one small difference between her and Phyllis George. Jane Kennedy was black. I had asked my agent to submit me um, for consideration. They were required to send a list of 10 candidates. And um, they said no. They said, first of all, they're not looking for anyone black, and they're going to be only looking for journalists. And I had seen some of the people that were being submitted. I had seen the list. And so I knew that that was not true. I knew that they were looking outside of the box, but they refused to submit me. 
Jane was born in Washington, D.C., but grew up in Ohio. Jane loved two things as a little girl. I was a sports addict from the very beginning. Loved the Cleveland Browns, loved Jim Brown, and that was in Cleveland Browns' heyday. So you would go through the neighborhoods and you would see people with their doors painted brown. So I wanted to be in sports, but it was pre-Title IX. Um, and so there were no programs. And the closest I could get to it was to become a cheerleader. Jane also loved entertaining. I remember my sisters and I used to be in the basement. We knew every lyric and every song of the Supremes. And we're down there in the basement charging people a nickel to watch our little Supremes show. By that time, Jane had already decided what she wanted to do with her life. But it would be in neither sports nor entertainment. It would be in politics. As a matter of fact, when I was modeling, we were doing a show at Terminal Tower in downtown Cleveland, and the guest speaker was Shirley Chisholm. And I could barely change into my clothes and get on the stage for modeling because I was glued. I was peeking through the windows, staring at her and watching her speak. And I was just enraptured and that I just decided I was going to go to Columbia University and become a political science major. But all that would change when Jane won Miss Ohio. However, as she discovered, being the first African-American woman to win in the pageant's history, the perks of the crown wouldn't take her far. Miss Ohio didn't really get me anywhere because I was the first black to win Miss Ohio. There was no support, there was no gift, there was nothing. I got the airplane ticket to go to Miami, but that was it. It would, however, place Jane in other circles, one of which would introduce her to a local disc jockey, an aspiring filmmaker named Leon Isaac Kennedy. The two fell in love, married, and moved to Los Angeles, where it wouldn't take Jane Kennedy long to make her mark in Hollywood. I was one of the first black dancers, singer dancers, to be on the Dean Martin show as part of Dean Martin's Dingling Sisters. I hate that name, so I forget it a lot. But we were the Dingling Sisters, and we were like the background singer dancers on the show. But as it had been for Jane's pageant success, her road in Hollywood would also be slowed and marred because of the color of her skin. And we toured the United States and do different appearances, shows, nightclub work, rotaries. But I remember we were in Beaumont, Texas, and my sister was living in Houston at that time. She and her husband, and they were going to watch the show. And she came backstage, and she was in tears. And she said, we're going to go home. And I said, why? I'm thinking maybe they got in an argument or something. And she didn't want to tell me. So finally, I kept pressing her. And she says, no, they won't seat us because they don't allow blacks at this club. So I said, this isn't going to work. I refuse to go on stage. Then they said to the other girls in the group, I know that you can still go on stage. And they looked at him and they said, we're sisters. If Jane doesn't go on, none of us go on. The club caved and Jane's sister and husband would watch her perform. But race would always be a part of Jane Kennedy's journey. Of course, you grow up with it. It's not something that just happens one moment. It's part of the culture, which is the problem that people don't understand. That's been a part of everything that I've done. But something else has also been a part of everything Jane Kennedy has done. She does not quit. And so, when the opportunity for the NFL Today became available, it didn't matter if her agency refused to submit her. 
second list was requested. All those were turned down. Third list was requested. All those were turned down. And each time I asked to be submitted and each time they rejected me. So I'm saying I got to try a different way with this. Jane would end up going to an old Cleveland connection of hers, a man known for breaking a few barriers of his own. I ended up calling Jim Brown, and he called Bob Stenner, who was a field producer for CBS Sports Games, and he called George Wallach. He said, okay, I think you'd be great at this, but if you get the job, I want to be your manager. I said, okay, that's fine with me. And I get to New York, and true enough, There were 17 of us and 16 were blondes. So yes, they were not looking for someone like me, but you know, I didn't care. At the audition in New York, Jane was up against some of the country's top female talent in journalism and entertainment. And the audition was an intense weekend of interviews, mock halftime shows that culminated in an improvised reading with the show's lead host, Brent Musburger. But midway through the auditions, after Jane had finished her portion, Musburger called it quits. When I finished, Brent Musburger stood up and said, it's Jane or nobody. And he didn't even bother to interview the rest. And that was it. Jane Kennedy, the one-time aspiring politician, model, dancer, and actress, was now the first African-American woman to hold an on-camera role at a major network. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to the NFL Today. It's indeed my pleasure today to welcome the newest member of our NFL Today team, Jane Kennedy, who grew up cheering Jim Brown in Cleveland and now lives in Los Angeles wondering what's going on with the Rams. Jim would like to hear that. First of all, I wanted to thank everybody for just being friends on the show. I'm going to appreciate that a lot. The hiring of Jane Kennedy was historic and immediately made her one of the most important cultural figures in the country for Black Americans. But Jane was never aware of her groundbreaking accomplishment. I was looking for an opportunity to make Jane Kennedy a household name, just like any other actress in Hollywood. My whole world became so busy and everything was just like one minute to the next, living on the West Coast, working on the East Coast. So, so many things were happening all at once. I didn't have time to stop and think. It wouldn't be until years later when Jane Kennedy finally realized that she had made history. A friend of mine had told me, you're on the wall at the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and Culture. I said, no way. I said, where, what, how, you know, who decided that? And I had to go see it. And so my daughter who lives in D.C., we went to the Smithsonian and we actually walked in the Oprah Winfrey exhibit on media and the television landscape. And it talked about pioneers in the media industry. And my picture from the NFL Today desk was huge on the wall, mounted right next to Nat King Cole, Diane Carroll, Nichelle Nichols, the Supremes, (laughs) and Don Cornelius. And I was just, it was mind blowing. I couldn't even move my feet to walk toward it. I was crying and I was thinking about all the struggle, the racism, the sexism, all of the isms that came into play that I experienced. And the fact that my mother kept telling me, you can do this, you can do this. But her achievement wouldn't be validated until she had learned who she had achieved for. When she went to see a friend for advice on a memoir she had started. 
I wanted to ask Oprah about how do I deal with certain aspects of my life that I had shied away from, things that I did not want to talk about, things that I did not want to be uncovered. And so I sat down and I spoke with her and she said, I've got 20 minutes, come, you know, she was in LA. She says, come to my hotel. So I sat down, four hours later, <laughs> she's telling me that I should wait till my youngest daughter is out of college to write the book. And so that's what I did. And she said, Jane, when Gail and I were younger, we used to watch you on television and we would jump up and down, scream and shout, color people on TV, color people on TV. And we would look at you and we would then know that we could do it too. And for Oprah to say that, those are the aha moments. And that's when you really, really know that you did something really special with your life. And when I went to the Smithsonian, not only did I see my picture on the wall, but right next to it was her quote, color people on TV, color people on TV. I wanted to be a sports writer from the time I was small. Job didn't exist for women. And my family moved a lot when I was a kid, which was great for getting to know sports in other states and cultures. But my mom was a teacher and she said to me, uh, Leslie, what do you think you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a sports writer. And instead of being negative about it and saying, oh, girls don't do that. She said, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. Leslie Candace Visser was born in Quincy, Massachusetts and is Boston bred through and through. When I think about it, the blessing of being born in Boston, and I was particularly a Sam Jones fan. Every year from the time I was like nine or 10 years old, on Halloween, I would dress up as Sam Jones and other girls would go as Mary Poppins or Cinderella. And I'd go, I'd write number 24 on my T-shirt and I got to know him really well. And he used to call me and say, Leslie, please don't dress up on me as Halloween. You know, you're in your 40s. Then it was in your 50s. Then it was in your 60s. To be a child of Boston meant that I grew up with Ted Williams, Bobby Orr, and the Celtics. And it was so unusual because you learned teamwork. It, there was no iso ball. If you were a child of the Celtics, it was all about team. And in Leslie's case, it was all about covering them. Visser's first opportunity to do so would be in 1974 with the Boston Globe after she won a Carnegie Foundation grant given to only 20 women in the country who wanted to go into jobs that were 95% male. The Boston Globe was so enormously talented. We always won the best sports section in America and the staff, it was like the 27 Yankees. It was Peter Gammons on baseball, Bob Ryan on basketball, Bud Collins, who taught in America how to watch tennis, Will McDonough on football. So it was like this roster that I just, I had all this internal pressure. You know, I wanted to make sure that I was honorable by the Globe, that I honored the name Visser. Women were watching. And when I look back on it, I think just my passion outweighed the hurdles. Because, you know, of course, they had no provisions for equality for the first seven years. But Leslie Visser wouldn't fight with the boys club. Instead, she would join it and change it. 
I always worked with men, right? It was always men only. They were all great mentors to me. And all the men before me were all storytellers. It was Jim McKay. It was Jack Whitaker. It was John Madden. It was Al Michaels. It was Dick Enberg. It was Vern Lundquist. It was everybody who I personally had so admired and worked with most of them. And that for me, what is anything? Why do we care about the Olympics? Because we learn the stories of those people. Why do we watch great movies? Because they're stories. And in the beginning, most of Leslie Visser's stories were written from a parking lot. I covered the NFL, which meant I was always out in the parking lots. John Madden used to say I was caught in a two-way go. Myself, out in the parking lot, I'd have to decide Okay, the Globe readers want to read about Steve Grogan, the quarterback, even though they lost, but there goes Terry Bradshaw getting on the Steeler bus. So it was a real juggling act. So I think it made me a better reporter. Visser's passion may have outweighed the hurdles, but it would be her talent that would draw the attention of network television. There I was at the Globe and, you know, I was only making $14,000, but I thought I was making a million. I mean, I was being paid to go to the Olympics and the Super Bowl. And, and I just, I love competition. I, I always say, I think it's the great meritocracy in America because your father can't buy you the starting job for the New York Giants and doesn't matter how much money your mother has, you hit the jumper, you sink the putt. So I really, I believe I was an honorable role model for women in that I genuinely loved covering sports. And this was in the early 80s, I guess. Ted Shaker, who was then the executive producer of CBS Sports, he came to me and he said, Leslie, we'd like to hire a woman who knows sports and will teach you the TV. And according to Brent Musburger, Leslie was the perfect fit. Leslie was a terrific reporter, and she came from that side of it. And she recognized what a great story is immediately. And so that kind of put her in a different league. And of course, by the time she came in, Phyllis and Jane, they kicked the door open. So the world was ready for a reporter. I think any journalist, by now young men come up to me too, but uh, I think you have to have three non-negotiables. Number one, you need passion. You know, if you don't love it, don't do it. It's too hard. Secondly, you need knowledge. You know, knowledge I think is unassailable. Knowledge leads to confidence. And the third is stamina. You know, those of us who've been doing this for decades, the Ferris wheel goes up and the Ferris wheel comes down and you have to have some self-esteem about yourself and work to get that Ferris wheel to go back up. Very few people in culture and media have the word first associated with their names. But Leslie Visser has had the word attached to her name throughout her whole career. She is the first woman in six halls of fame the first woman analyst in both radio and television, the first woman to report from a Super Bowl sideline, the first woman to cover the NFL as a beat, the first woman to present the championship Lombardi trophy at the Super Bowl, and the first woman on Monday Night Football. But while Leslie takes pride in these accomplishments, she takes a greater pride in that she wasn't the last. 
I have a lot of gratitude that women now can do anything she wants. I mean, a woman can grow up and say, I want to do radio play-by-play. I want to try to be an assistant coach. I want to be a writer. I want to see if I can put together an ownership group. You know, it can be really anything. And that is just so many miles (laughs) from, obviously I had to imagine my own career. So I think nothing is impossible. There are lots of women in the league now, in the league offices. There are women who have positions of power in teams. Was it enough for me yet? No, (laughs) but that's just selfish. But uh, I do think any woman can, as a young person now can say, I want to do that and it can happen. Passion, knowledge, stamina. All qualities of a young woman who studied ballet while at the University of Pennsylvania. Named Andrea Kramer. Well, like most little girls, mom signed me up for ballet and I started dancing when I was really young and I ended up dancing throughout high school, college, and in New York, I danced also with two professional companies. But Andrea Kramer had another passion as well. My passion for ballet was maybe only exceeded by my passion for football. I fell in love with football because of the Miami Dolphins. Please do not insult me by asking me if it's because I liked the color of their uniforms. I loved their fullback, Larry Zonka. So much so that Kramer named her first dog after the Miami running back. I take no credit for that. Coach Shula named his dog Zonk and I stole it from him. But as I said in my Hall of Fame acceptance speech, some little girls had Barbie, I had Larry Zonka. Kramer began honing her skills as a football reporter at a young age. What I would do as a kid is that the week of the Super Bowl, I would cut out all the articles from the now defunct Philadelphia Bulletin and the New York Times, and I'd paste them on paper. And on the morning of the Super Bowl, I presented my parents with what amounted to a scouting report. I was very, very lucky that my parents thought it was okay that cute little Andy, the little ballet dancer, liked sports. But I sure never thought I'd be working in sports because when I was growing up, I didn't exist. And when I tell that to young people, they look at me quizzically, but that's the reality. So I sort of carved my own path. Kramer would learn very quickly that carving her own path would come with obstacles. My very first job in sports, I was sports editor of the largest weekly newspaper in Pennsylvania, the Mainline Chronicle, and I was profiling Eagles wide receiver Mike Quick, and he was going to his first Pro Bowl. And Mike and I are just sitting in adjacent lockers, just talking about football. And he looks at me and he goes, wow, you really know what you're talking about. And I kind of threw my hands up. I'm like, "Uh, yeah, why else am I here? And to this day, we've joked about it. So it was the start of what I realized was going to be one test after another in some capacity. Preparation is your armor. And if I am prepared, then I can pretty much put up with anything that would be thrown my way. Or on more than one occasion, dropped. I had one staunch rule. I would not interview a naked man in a locker room. I felt that if he didn't have the respect for himself or for me to put something on, I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to talk to him. And 
you know, again, you have people that think it's really cute to drop a towel and you don't pay them any mind. You don't give them any fuel. Even though, let me tell you, being five foot two, it's not a great situation. But the reality is that I would not let anybody intimidate me from doing my job. While Andrea Kramer's job was reporting, as she transitioned from behind the camera to in front of it, the job's prerequisites from her male superiors were a far cry from passion, knowledge, and stamina. In those days, our titles were producer, director, writer, editor. And it was a great, amazing job. I learned so much. And for the most part, all the men that I worked with were incredibly supportive. Going into my fourth year, Steve Sable came to me and said, we'd like to do something different. We want to put you on the air for a national show. This is the NFL. Now, all of a sudden, I have to go to my then producer and I say to him, what do you want me to look like? And he looks me in the eye and says, we want you to be friendly and informative. And my mouth drops and then he repeated it as though I didn't understand. And he says, you know, like, they want to be while they're talking football. So I hate to say it, what's changed? It's really sad that I've just said that, what's changed? What's changed is that nobody would ever say that to your face today because they would be gone in a nanosecond. But back then, you could say it. And I just remember feeling so shocked because he said it very matter-of-factly. Fast forward a year, and I was still really uncomfortable with knowing how to look. So I walked my little butt into a store in downtown Philadelphia, and I said, if I get you promotional consideration on my show, will you provide me clothes? They said, yep. I was dressed every week, I had hair and makeup every week, and now I could go and do what I'm best at, which is be a journalist, be a reporter, be a really good interviewer, but that was a big transition for me, and it was very, very stressful, and I figured it out. For over 35 years as a sports reporter, Kramer was never intimidated and would pass every test. And in a career filled with groundbreaking achievements for women, for the 2018 NFL season, Andrea Kramer, along with co-host Hannah Storm, would summit the Everest in professional broadcasting when the pair would be the first woman in history to call an NFL game in the booth. We were taking the same chance, challenge, whatever you want to call it, and we sort of held hands and jumped off the cliff together. I think we didn't realize the magnitude of what we were doing. And it's very funny because if you think about it, in all the decades that football has been broadcast, there have been technical innovations, technological innovations, but there's never been any change to the broadcast booth in terms of gender until we walked in. Like, how can that be? So the night before first game, my phone rings. And I look down and I go, hello, coach. And it's John Madden. Why didn't I know about this? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you call me? Da -da 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 -da. How are you doing? And I go, coach, kind of scared shitless here. And he goes, okay, okay. And then he says to me, then John Madden says to me, don't feel like you have to cram for the test. You've been preparing for this your entire career. Oh my God, when John Madden tells you that, 
you listen. So my anxiety level went from about 100 down to a 70, but at least the trajectory was going down, so that's good. But it would be a message from a stranger sent to Kramer's inbox that would lower her anxiety to nothing. The day before our first game, I get an email from this guy. I, to this day, I don't know who he is. I have no idea how he got my email address. And he writes, and I quote, Good luck to you, two fine broadcasters. It's about time. We are better for having you pave the way. I imagine there will be countless young girls who will wake up Friday morning with an entirely new dream. You are making it possible. Oh, my God. I read this to Hannah. We both start crying. It just was very emotional because all of a sudden, we weren't just thinking about all the preparation and we have to do this, we have to... Now we were realizing, oh my goodness, we're really gonna have an impact here on people. Today, on every network that covers sports, what viewers take for granted, a woman commenting on a man's game can be traced back to a group of women who crossed when the sign said, don't walk. Though their legacy goes far beyond media and gender, the inspiration they gave to the generations of female sports journalists who followed them can never be forgotten, says Emmy Award-winning journalist Lisa Salters. Those women, they didn't have role models. They kind of wrote the blueprint. They wrote the manual on how to be a successful woman in sports. And so and you can't thank them enough. Those women were pioneers. I just came in and kind of picked up the baton where they left off and will pass it on to the next generation. But, you know, for those women who really didn't have uh, anyone to look to, who were just kind of doing it on their own and figuring it out on their own and being successful on their own and being badass on their own, they're the ones who really deserve our admiration. Thank you, ladies. And thank you for listening. This has been an Audible Original, created by P.G. Kosheri. Produced by Audible Originals and Joy Road Entertainment. Neil Cabana, P.G. Kosheri, Matthew Hatchett, and Jim Young. Executive producer, Nick D'Angelo. The production was designed, engineered, and mixed by Neil Cabana. Acquisition and development, John Kim and Sonia Kim. Audible Legal Services, Whitney Marshall. Legal services provided by Pierce Law Group, David Albert Pierce, and Carter Courtney. Audible Head of U.S. Content, Rachel Giazza. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki. Joy Road Entertainment is P.G. Kusheri, Matthew Hatchett, Bobby Glenn-Smith, Tim Livingston, and Jim Young. Copyright 2022 by Joy Road Entertainment, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2022 by Audible Originals, LLC. Our special thanks, Pamela Brown, Lincoln Brown, Rich Podolsky, Brent Musburger, Jane Chastain, Phyllis George, Leslie Visser, Andrea Kramer, Jane Kennedy, 